0: Good morning, Redeemer. It's good to see you. It's good. Happy New Year. It's good to be with you. Uh, first Sunday in 2021. Uh, we are doing well. My wife and I are expecting uh, a, a child this week, so on hopefully Wednesday, uh, you can pray for us. But I, I just wanted to let you know that because, uh, you know, I will be I'm kind of social distancing today. So when I run off and hide in my study afterward, it's not it's not because I didn't want to talk, talk with you. Uh, it's not you. It's me. So I don't be offended. Uh, we jump back into our series uh, today in 1 Peter called Hope for Exiles. This is a series we were in before uh, we broke for Advent. Uh, and it's it's always good to jump straight into God's word wherever we are. This is an interesting passage uh, to jump right back into. Uh, but if you remember, Peter is writing to Gentile Christians throughout uh, what is, you know, throughout Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Uh, there's really two interesting ways that Peter talks to these Gentile Christians. Um, the first one is that he, he, he uses a lot of Old Testament, uh, really Jewish language to describe them. For example, in, in chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Um, so, so he's saying that, that Gentile Christians are brought in To the people of God, right? We have a new identity as God's people. The second interesting way he talks to these Christians uh, is that that while they are likely in their hometowns, you know, wherever they're from, whatever town they were from in in uh, in Turkey, um, you know, he keeps calling them foreigners. Right? You are strangers. You are exiles. uh, You are people who are uh, seeking a homeland. And so. we can take th- these identities for ourselves as well as God's people. Right? We are God's people now, and our citizenship is in heaven. Uh, we, we have a home elsewhere that we belong to. Um, so we are exiles, we are strangers, we don't belong here. And I, and I, th- I hope this has been a comfort to us in, in a really weird political season that we're in. Uh, we're thankful for our nation, right? we pray for her, but uh, America is not our home. America is not our true home. We are strangers here. We are aliens. Uh, We are witnesses to a a reality that is deeper and greater than any nation. As as, uh, Pastor Kevin quoted in his great sermon on politics and, and the kingdom of God, he quoted Mark Dever saying this, Before and after America, there was and will be the church. The nation is an experiment. The church is a certainty. Uh, along with this new identity as beloved children of God and, and exiles in the world, uh, we've seen over and over again in First Peter the theme of suffering. Suffering comes up over and over and over. These churches that Peter is writing to are experiencing persecution for their faith, and there's a potential for a great persecution. Right? Peter will die a few years after he wrote this in the persecution of Rome. Uh, and and it, it, you know, Christianity—I don't know if you know—has has very rarely been popular. <laughs> In the world, right? It's very rarely been, been popular. Um, in fact, it, Christianity doesn't fit any culture, right? It, it, it critiques um, and, and affirms parts of every culture, actually. It fits well in some ways in every culture, but it also cr- challenges and critiques every culture. Uh, we are living in, a, in a, cr- a quickly secularizing Western culture, right? Um, and, and more and more, our, our basic and long-standing beliefs are seen not only as out of date, not only as antiquated you know but as dangerous right as a threat and so if, if we are faithful, we will suffer for that faith and this is not pleasant of course it 's not what we would choose it 's not what I would choose uh, but but in many instances, historically the church has has really flourished under intense persecution right we see that the the persecution is actually good for the church. And so it's not all doom and gloom, right? We know that God's in control. We're not worried uh, about it ultimately, but, but it's important that we are ready for this, that we're ready. And that's what Peter's saying here. He's teaching Christians how to suffer, right? He's teaching them how to be faithful in a hostile environment. Um, and, and look at the passage directly before our, starting in verse 14. But even if you should suffer, 1 Peter three fourteen. even if you should suffer for righteousness, you're blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do this with gentleness and, respect and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. He's teaching them to suffer, right? And this passage leads right into our passage. It's the context directly before. And so we need to remember what it's saying here by zooming in on that last verse in particular, verse 17. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This means, doesn't it? I mean, look at it. This means that sometimes it is God's will that we would do the right thing and then suffer for it. Right? It means sometimes we do the right thing and we'll suffer for it, and that was what God wanted. I think we often have the opposite thought when, when we suffer. Right? We, we, we say, what did I do wrong to deserve this? But, but that's not really a Christian question, right? because we know that as Christians that Jesus took all the punishment for our sin. There's no wrath left for us. Um, so we need to have this category. We need to have the same category that Peter has here for suffering. I'm being faithful. I'm suffering. This is God's will for me. But the question is why, right? And that's what we ask. Why? Why, why do we have to suffer? Why is it God's will that we would suffer? Why, why should we patiently, even patiently endure suffering, like he says, even being gentle and respectful to everyone while we suffer? Why, why should we love our enemies while they are hurting us? For, look at verse 18, uh, Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. Okay, Peter's gonna lay out in this passage how suffering leads to victory. Okay, he's gonna lay out here how suffering leads to victory. And we'll see two two points um, two main points this morning, uh, how suffering leads to victory for Christ, and then how suffering leads to victory for us let 's pray uh, once more and, and uh, before we dive in, Lord. Um, we need you to come this morning uh, and to to teach us and to encourage us and to open our eyes um, lord we we uh, we want to hear from you, no one wants to hear from me, um, Lord, I am so inadequate for this i, I can 't even change uh, my own heart, <laughs> much less anyone else's and so uh, I, just, I just beg you to come and pour out your spirit into our hearts. Um, you, would, you would show us your love, you would encourage us, and you would speak to each of us individually in the ways that we need it this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. First, suffering to victory for Christ. Suffering to victory for Christ. Christ suffered for sins once for all, righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. Uh, in a minute, we're going to get to a really confusing and unclear part of the Bible. You might have been thinking ever since the reading, uh, "What does what in the world do verses nineteen and twenty mean?" Uh, and I've been thinking that all week. And so we can you can hope that I get it figured out before we get there in the sermon. Uh, but but I think we can and should acknowledge that there are verses in the Bible that are unclear. It's okay to, to acknowledge that. Um, some people use those unclear verses to cast doubt on the rest of the Bible. But I don't think that's fair. I, I think the Bible uh, is clear. Uh, on the most important things, the Bible is very clear. Right? And that's a comfort to me. Where, where we are from, who we are, who God is, how to be saved, who Jesus is, how to obey God. On all these things, the Bible is abundantly uh, clear. These things are plain. And this verse, verse 18, um, is one of the glorious and clear ones. Right? It's, it's one of, this could be your life verse. Uh, you know, so let's break it down. Uh, verse 18, Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. We are the unrighteous, right? In this verse, who are we? We are the unrighteous. Um, if you're alive, you're born into sin. You're born a rebel against God. Um, and, and there's a reckoning coming. There's a judgment. Um, I know it's an unpopular thought, uh, but, but remember how I said Christianity challenges uh, every culture in certain ways? This is one of the ways that, that Christianity challenges our, our culture. This is one of the ways that the unchanging gospel message challenges specifically our culture. If you go to traditional culture uh, and you say, God judges sinners, they're like, duh, yeah, makes total sense, right? But you say that here, go, whoa, how could God do that, right? It's, it's a cultural thing. We all have things that we struggle with, parts of the truth that we struggle with. And this is one of ours. We all stand naked before him to whom we must give an account. We, we have to pay for what we have done in the body, whether good or evil. And, and we have not measured up. Right? We have, we've missed the mark. That's what the word sin means. We've missed the mark. And, and I, I don't think I have to argue that. You feel it. We all feel it. Right? Guilt and shame are, are human problems. And, and maybe this is helpful to you. Um, it could be helpful to you. maybe your, your deep sense of guilt, uh, your sense of inadequacy, maybe that's not just a psychological phenomenon that you, can't, that you can get over with some you know enough positive thinking. I, I'm not a psychologist, I don't know your situation, so I'm not saying that there aren't or can't be biological or chemical factors at play. Of course there can be. Um, but perhaps it would be helpful for you to ask yourself if the reason for your unease is perhaps that you stand with real guilt before a really holy God. Like maybe those feelings aren't just a, a psychological construct, something like a mist you just need to wipe away. Maybe, maybe those are actually an accurate uh, depiction of your real situation. In, in Hebrews, it talks about the way that the ancient Israelites dealt with their guilt and their shame. The sacrificial system, the killing of bulls and goats and... And, uh, and sheep on the altar. This was a temporary system, Hebrews tells us, that, that symbolized atoning for, paying for sin, but which didn't really take away sin. It didn't really do it. Um, instead, it was a foreshadowing of the coming sacrifice, the coming atonement that would take away the sin and that would be once for all. And this is Christ. It's what our text says. He suffered once for all, once for sins. This is Christ, the Lamb of God, who came to take away the sins of the world. He suffered in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous. Right? We're the unrighteous. Who is Jesus? He's the righteous. He's perfect. Right? He's gentle, kind, loving, pure, good, patient, humble, in every way. Have you ever thought about it? He, he's the only one, he's the only human ever born who didn't deserve to suffer at all. And he's the one who willingly took the greatest suffering imaginable. Why did he suffer? It says for sins to bring you to God. Our sin separates us from God. But with his once for all suffering, he took away the barrier. Right the way is open for us. The way is open to God for you because of the work of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, right? He is the way to the Father. He suffered to bring you to God. Now, the unclear part, the unclear part. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah. Um, commentators are, are split on what this means, uh, in several ways. Uh, Martin Luther said, uh, a wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage, perhaps, than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. So that's always helpful when you read that. Um, first, <laughs> let, me tell you why, let me tell you why I'm not in the least bit worried about confusing Bible passages. And this is good, because as you read through the Bible, you'll come to things and you'll be like, what does that mean? <laughs> right? And that's okay. Like, well, you could think that. You should think that. Um, one, as I said earlier, the Bible is very clear on the important things. Okay, so that's first. The Second, n- number two, I-, I just don't expect that if the triune God of the universe wrote a book that I would be able to understand it all immediately. Right? He's smarter than me. <laughs> I read books all the time by people who are smarter than me, and I don't understand all of them. Right? And so why would I think that I could understand it immediately if the God of the universe wrote a Bible wrote a book, Um, and in fact, to me, it would be a little bit of a red flag if there wasn't any mystery, right? I get to these things, I'm like, I don't know if I'll understand that before glory, right? But probably there's a lot of things I won't understand before glory, (laughs) So this may be one of them, right? Um, And so I I just think it'd be arrogant of me to assert that if I can't understand all of it on its face, then it's not credible. No, that's not how I judge anything else. So now I'll tell you where, where I fall on this one and why. Um, he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. I think this is talking about Jesus' crucifixion and his bodily resurrection, right? I think he was put to death in the flesh, means his body was killed, and then, uh, and then he was made alive by the Spirit, means the Spirit made him alive again, r- raised him from the dead, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, some people think this means that Jesus went between his uh, his crucifixion and his resurrection and preached the gospel to uh, like people who were who died during Noah's day. Um, this is the verse that, that Catholics use to support purgatory. Um, but but that's this is a stretch, right? That, that's a stretch, and, and it, it's too much against the rest of Scripture. Right? You always interpret the less more the less clear parts of Scripture by the more clear parts of Scripture. It's just too much against the rest of Scripture. There's nothing else about that anywhere so what I think this means is that sometime after his resurrection Jesus went and proclaimed his victory that doesn't say what he what he proclaimed I think he proclaimed his victory to imprisoned evil angels who were disobedient in the days of Noah okay here's why here's why first the word that Peter uses for spirits um, almost without exception where this is "imprisoned spirits without exception it refers to to angels and not to people So i think it means angels um second in in second peter 4 or second peter 2 4 and 5 uh, peter talks about imprisoned angels and even makes the connection to noah this is interesting second uh, peter 2 4 for if god did not spare the angels who sinned but cast them into hell and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment. Sounds like prison, right? And if he didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, when he brought the flood on the world of the ungodly. So Peter, he, he obviously makes this connection in his mind between these angels being in prison and Noah. I see the same connection there. Um, third... And in early Jewish writings, both inside and outside of the Bible, there, there was a connection between the, the evil angels of Genesis 6, 1 through 4, um, who had children with women, which, I mean, talk about a strange and mysterious passage. Go, go check that one out. Um, but, but those evil angels and the flood, right? In Genesis 6, that's what happens right before God sends the flood. And so there's the idea uh, that these evil acts of these angels tipped the scales and brought God's judgment on the world Through the flood, Um, so in other words, I I think this is likely what the original hearers would have immediately thought of, right? Because there was already that that those ideas floating around. I think that's what they would have thought of when they read this from Peter. And fourth, I think it just fits the context of this passage. I think it's just the most natural reading because verse twenty-two says that Jesus is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers being subject to Him. Okay, so Peter's saying he's building to saying. Um, In verse 22, that Jesus, alive, ascended to heaven, is victorious over all angels and powers uh, and authorities. And so, in verse 19, saying that Jesus appeared alive after his resurrection and proclaimed victory over evil angelic beings, seems to fit with that context. And this is the point. This is the point. Jesus' unjust suffering led to his victory and his exaltation. Right? That's the clear thing. Right? Jesus, the righteous one, suffered. And through his suffering, he defeated sin, Satan, death, demons, and hell. Right? He rose in victory. He was successful in his mission. He defeated his enemies, and he brought, he brought us to God. And, n- and now he's exalted, uh, and he is seated on the throne. He went through suffering, and it led him to victory. Now, suffering to victory for us. Suffering to victory for us. Uh, When God patiently waited in the days of Noah, verse 20 says, while the ark was being prepared, in it a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, speaking of Noah leads Peter to think of the judgment of the flood and God's salvation of Noah and his family. And so like a good preacher, he just keeps flowing. Uh, he, he makes the comparison between Noah, Noah's situation and our situation, uh, from the flood to baptism. He says in, in verse 21, it's really interesting, that baptism corresponds to the Noah story, which is really interesting. That may not be a connection we would normally make. Well, how, how does it do that? Well, the story of Noah... Uh, is a great bedtime story we tell our kids about God killing all the people on earth with a giant flood. You can have a flannel board even um, and show everyone drowning. Uh, God sees the the widespread wickedness of man on the earth and decides to wipe everything and everyone out except for Noah and his family and some animals. God says build a boat large enough to carry everyone uh, and everything and, and it takes them over a hundred years to build it. With Noah preaching to his generation the whole time, trying to get them to repent, which they won't. And that's the patience part, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Um, Noah and his family get into the ark, and the rain starts falling, right? God closes the door, the flood covers the, the whole earth, uh, and, and everyone and everything dies in God's judgment. So Peter says a few, the eight people of all the people on earth, were saved through water. The water bore them up over the flood, and they were saved. And then he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is great. This is a great connection. Um, Now, in case we're thinking that that he's saying that the act of baptism saves you, as many traditions affirm, the physical act, um, he explains right away, it's not what physically happens. It's not the removal of dirt from the body, right? It's not just getting clean. We would use soap, if that was the case. Uh, But it's not that. It's what it represents. It's the pledge of a good conscience before God. Okay? Okay. Uh, it's the pledge of a good conscience before God. Baptism is, is a physical act of cleansing, of being washed, uh, but that's not the point, right? The point is our union with Jesus Christ in his death and his burial and his resurrection through faith. Um, how do you get a good conscience before God, like we talked about earlier? The, the way to get a good conscience before God is to trust Jesus who suffered for your sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Uh, In baptism, you're making a pledge to God, which is covenantal language, right? It's a sign. It's an outward enacting of the inward reality of going with Jesus through the waters of death and coming out with Jesus alive on the other side. That's why we say buried with Christ, raised to walk, and newness of life. Baptism saves you through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I love that. We are united to Jesus in his death so that when he died, so did we. We're united to Jesus in his life so that when he rose, so did we. We take refuge in the ark, who is the Lord Jesus. We ride safely through the water of the wrath of God and we emerge in him to new life and to a clean conscience. Jesus endured suffering that led to his victory. The path to victory was through the valley of the shadow of death. And for the Christian, for the baptized for those with a good conscience by faith, suffering also leads to victory through Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. We, we share in his suffering so that we can share in his glory. Th- this is why we suffer. Right? It's the only path to glory. And this is the consistent message of the New Testament. Um, Paul's life is my favorite example of this. Uh, there's a saga in Acts, in Acts 13 and 14, that uh, that just... Kind of showcases this in a really amazing way. Uh, we we first meet Paul, you know, and his name is Saul in Acts chapter seven. Uh, and and it, when when we when we first meet him there, he's holding coats for the people who are going to stone Stephen to death or executing Stephen, uh, one of the first of the uh, seven deacons. And it says that Saul approves of his execution. Right? He's he's a he's a Pharisee. He's a zealous. Uh, you know, follower of God who, who sees, who sees the, the Jesus movement, the way, right? He sees them as a threat. Uh, and so he passionately uh, persecutes the church. In Acts 9, we see him on the road to Damascus where he has authorization to imprison any Christians he can find. And suddenly a, a great light shines around him, right? He's knocked to the, to the ground. And Jesus himself shows up to Saul and speaks to him. And this changes everything, Right, this changes everything. His name changes from Saul to Paul. He goes from being a zealous persecutor of the church to being uh, one of the greatest missionaries of the church and the one who wrote the majority of the New Testament. Um, notably, for our purposes, one of the things that Jesus says about Paul, uh, just right, right away, right in, the early, in those, that early part of Acts, is I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. In chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are called on their first missionary journey. And they set off. And things honestly just go as well as you can imagine. I don't know if you've been on many mission trips, uh, but this is one that you wouldn't want to miss at the beginning, right? Uh, like they go to, to Cyprus, um, and there's this, this sorcerer who opposes them uh, on, on Cyprus, and, and Paul rebukes him, and he goes blind, and everyone, see, everyone like believes it's awesome. Uh, they, they sail to Antioch of Pisidia, and they preach one day. There And then the next Sabbath day, the whole town gathers to hear the message. I mean, that's awesome. You go, you tell a couple of people the gospel in a town, and they're like, hey, come back on, on Sunday because we're all going to be there, right? Uh, and, and everyone shows up. But as often happens, uh, that much attention brings negative attention too. Uh, and so the unbelieving Jews start to get angry and try to stop this message from going out. Or they can't stop it. It says the message spread quickly throughout the region. Uh, but they do succeed in kicking Paul and Barnabas out of Antioch. Um, but Paul and Barnabas don't stop. They go to another town, the next town called Iconium. They preach there, right? It says a great number of people believed. They stay there a while and there's, there's this really mounting tension, right? There's people believing and hearing and responding. It's awesome. And then there's people who, who hate them, right? They're, the opposition is also growing. Um, there's an attempt on their lives there. And so they flee and they, they go to the next town called Lystra where they continue to preach. They continue on their mission. Um, now, in Lystra... Paul immediately heals this man who's lame from birth. Can't walk through Jesus' name. He's able to walk. Uh, He does this miracle. And the town starts worshiping he and Barnabas as gods, right? It's Hermes and Zeus. They've come down from heaven to, you know, like no one else could have this power. And so Paul and Barnabas have to run out and tear their clothes and be like, don't sacrifice any bulls or anything. We're just men. Like, we're just here to tell you about Jesus. It's not us. Uh, But they get to preach to him. Um, Then... Some Jews who opposed Paul in Antioch and Iconium, uh, they're kind of following. They, they come to Lystra. Um, they rile up the crowds and convince them uh, against Paul. And then they execute him. Right? They stone him to death. It says they think he's dead. And they drag him out of the city. And then Acts 14, 20 says, after the disciples gathered around him, he got up and went into the town. He's not dead. The next day, he left with Barnabas for Derbe. Now, I don't know if you've ever been beaten to the point uh, where everyone around assumes you're dead. Uh, but I haven't, you know. But, um, and, and so this is, but this is Paul's situation, right? This is Paul's situation. And I just think, if it was me, I just think, you know, that might just be a sign that this mission trip's over, right? I'm just, I'm just going to go home now because I just got beaten to death, right? Uh, but, but Paul doesn't st- He doesn't stop. He goes to the next town, Derby, and he preaches there. And then, and this is the crazy part to me. If you if you can't believe we haven't if you can believe we haven't gotten to the crazy part yet, uh, Acts fourteen twenty one. After they preached the gospel in that town in Derby and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith. So he preaches in Derby, then goes back to the very cities where they tried to stone him, where they did stone him. And, and he encourages the disciples there. So just imagine being a new Christian in Lystra. okay? Who heard, you heard Paul preach a couple weeks ago and believed. You saw the Jews grab him and stone him. You thought he was dead just like everyone. He was so bloody and mangled. You, you thought it was a miracle when he got up. And, and you were so glad he, he was able to make it out alive. Then a little while later, we don't know how long, a couple weeks maybe, He comes back into town. He comes to your small group. This is the guy who risked his life and almost died. It's a complete stranger, right? Risked his life, almost died to to tell you about Jesus. And then a short time later, he's risking his life again just to come and encourage you. He's looking better than he did when he left, right? Which isn't saying much. Uh, but he still has bruises on his face. He still has cuts in various stages of healing. I'm sure he's stiff, like he's walking with a limp still, you know. And you, you sit down in small group to listen to what he has to say. Right. And, and I just, just imagine how attentive you would be to this person. <laughs> what are you going to say? And here's the summary of what he said from Acts 14, 22. It is necessary... To go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Just picture like blood trickling down his mouth, you know? It's, it's necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. What does that mean coming from Paul in that moment? What does it sear on those Christians' hearts? about what it means to follow Jesus. Through many hardships, you must enter the kingdom of God. We, we try to avoid all the hardships. We, we try to dodge the suffering, don't we? we? We recoil in horror at the prospect of going through anything painful. Right? We, we assume that if we do it right, Our lives are just a never-ending, increasing, upward trajectory of comfort and happiness. What Paul says, and Peter says, and Jesus says, the way to glory, the way to exaltation, the way to victory is the way of the cross. There's no glory without suffering. Paul went on to live this message. Right? And to teach this message throughout his ministry, I mean we could keep going in Acts, like Acts 20, one of the great places he's like, i 'm going on to Jerusalem, constrained by the spirit. He, all I know is that in every town, imprisonments and beating await me. I don't know what's going to happen except I do know I'm going to get imprisoned and I'm going to get beaten <laughs> right he, he lives this to the end, doesn't he He 's imprisoned in Rome um, and, and he continues to, to teach this to, to people throughout his ministry, uh, Romans eight, right Romans eight. Great, ver- great passage here. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We want it to stop there, but the verse doesn't stop there. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him. So that we may also be glorified with him. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For our momentary light affliction, which is what Paul calls being stoned to death, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what's seen, but what's unseen. What is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. The the affliction itself, this momentary affliction, is producing the glory. If you want the glory, you you need what produces the glory, which is the affliction. The affliction itself. How does our suffering produce the glory that's to come? I don't know, but it does. That's what it says. Through many hardships, you must enter the kingdom of God. As Peter said back in in chapter 2, verse 21... For you were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Jesus went through suffering to victory, and we follow our crucified Lord. Jesus' suffering doesn't exempt us from suffering. That's what we wish would happen, isn't it? He suffered for us, so I don't have to suffer. But that's not what it says. His his suffering doesn't exempt us from suffering. In fact, it's quite the opposite. When we we follow Jesus, we opt into a life of suffering, a life of self-sacrifice, a life of death. But, But he makes the path through suffering always lead to victory and joy. We don't get exempted from the suffering, but we get the promise. And may God give us grace to faithfully endure our suffering as it comes. And, and I, I really hope, I, I, know, um, I know many of you are suffering, and I know in a room like this there's a ton of people suffering in a ton of ways that I'm not aware of. Um, and so I, I, I think there's a way to talk about suffering that's insensitive to sufferers, and I hope it's not this. I hope that hasn't been today. I, I, I don't want to be insensitive to you. I don't want suffering. I don't want suffering for anyone. I want suffering for you. But suffering is a reality for us. It's a reality, and the only hope we have is that Christ suffered for us. The only hope we have is the promise that, his, that our suffering will produce for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. God's working all things for good. And, and so I, I do pray that God would give us grace. I'm gonna end with, uh, with Hebrews 13, uh, starting in verse 12. which is a, is a, I think this is such a good call for us and summarizes so much. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp bearing his disgrace. For we do not have an enduring city here Instead, we seek the one that is to come. Therefore, through him, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that confess his name. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for for um, your honesty with us, your... Um, you are preparing us for 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 the reality of suffering in our lives. Um, there's so much suffering in this world, Lord. If we live long enough, we will see so many types of suffering, um, and often those who who have the shortest lives suffer the most. And Lord, we don't know why. We don't know why we suffer in so many ways. We can't connect the dots, um, Jesus. But we thank you that you suffered for us the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. We thank you that we can trust you, that we can say with Peter in our suffering, where else can we go? Because you have the words of eternal life. Thank you that we have the promise that one day you will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and mourning and sadness and sorrow will be no more. Because you're making everything new. Would you give us strength Would you give us faith? Would you give us the peace that passes understanding? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.